This is The Writer's Voice, new fiction from The New Yorker. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. On this episode of The Writer's Voice, we'll hear David Means read his story, The Depletion Prompts, from the November 1, 2021 issue of the magazine. Means is the author of the novel Histopia and five story collections, including The Spot and Instructions for a Funeral, which was published in 2019. Now here's David Means. The Depletion Prompts Right about that night, long ago, when you lay in bed listening to the sound of wind buzzing through the old television aerial mounted on the porch outside your bedroom. Remember the door out to the tin roof, the buckle and ting against your toes? A deeply disturbing sound, like a stuck harmonica reed, one that, combined with the sound of crying drifting up from downstairs through the heater duct, seemed indicative of more troubling harmonics. Write about the way that one summer afternoon your older sister Meg disappeared, heading out into the beyond as you saw it, until finally she called one night in September to explain that she was fine, safe in California, not far from a redwood forest, staying with a guy named Billy, which caused your father, who was cradling the heavy black phone, the receiver against his lips, to grimace tightly, his face bewhiskered, thick with stubble, before he began weeping softly, as he turned and suddenly, with a grand sweep of his arms, held the phone up and away from him, so that the curls of the spiral cord spread out and the mute intonation of the dial tone was audible, remembered years later. Right about the summer, the dead heart of it, up in northern Michigan, when you wandered alone for days on end, feeling the acute isolation, but also relishing the joy of being away from home, far away. Although even there, sitting on the shore of the lake, listening to the waves plunge against the stone pier, you were aware that trouble was brewing downstate, where your sister had been caught with an older man. Write about the whispers you heard, your father leaning against the sideboard in the dining room, lifting a glass to his lips, your mother's voice full of anxiety. Just use the whispers, fragments of tense language, to build the fuzzy narrative that you carried, that you conjured as you wandered alone. Two shadow figures naked in a bed lit by quartz lamps. Write about Jerry Gray, the neighborhood bully, with the shaggy bangs hanging over his face and the way he swung his head to move his hair and reveal his eyes, riveted and angry, bloodshot, full of a desire for revenge as he pinned you against the fence, that one on the way to school, and dug a single knuckle into your chest and warned you that he was going to kill you. Explore the reasoning behind his threat. Something about your older sister, something about something she had done to him, or to other boys, or to her reputation. Do your best to be as specific as possible while also bending around the truth so as to protect the living. Write about the time a search party was sent out on a winter night to find her, 
a whole posse of neighborhood men, including Dr. Frank, the allergist who used to give you shots, and how, having caught wind of the situation, they gathered in the snow outside the front door like carolers, the lights from the doorway casting their placid, eager faces into masks, and how they went out with your father and searched the frozen lake on snowmobiles, looking for what they thought or feared at least would be a body, and then came back to sit at the kitchen table and discuss the matter. Your mother's soft cries and their talk traveled up the furnace duct into your room as you leaned over it and listened. Get those words down, the tension and strange eroticism. Find a way to name it of their desire to help out and the way hours later your sister came home, smiling and manic, and laughed at your father's concern. Write about the strange dynamic between the past and the present as the dynamic tries to put itself into words. Write about the failure of language to reclaim pain and how you tried again and again to find a way into the topic like Nabokov did in his story, Signs and Symbols, about an older couple trying to navigate around their mentally ill son. Steal his story, as others have stolen it, and reframe it and rebuild using his structure. Go fearlessly and take as much as you want and ease the burden of dreaming up your own structure. Write about the baby born in a closet somewhere in Michigan back in the 1970s, and a teenage kid too afraid to let anyone know that she was pregnant, hiding it beneath blouses and ponchos, which wasn't hard because those loose tops were the fashion along with bell bottoms, and it was perfectly fine to float around as if oblivious. And then she had the baby in the closet. That's the center of the story. That phrase, that idea, huddled in the dark, terrified, hunched over. Take that image and connect it to the one you saw in a Lamaze class on the Upper West Side. Everyone on beanbag chairs watching a video about childbirth and you saw a woman in what country? In a special chair, in a squat position, the baby emerging with what seemed to be ease, the head ballooning out and then the slippery emergence of new life. Connect that image with your imagined sister, too, and then merge them together so that it was her, the sister, not your sister, but the one in the story, although there will be that blurry line formed between what you write and what readers project onto the story, of course, so that there is confusion in the narrator's mind, a young boy with a wayward sister. Use that word, wayward, to describe the way the young boy thinks about his sister in his confusion as he hears or perhaps imagines her cries in the afternoon behind the closet door and opens it to the sight of her there, her face sweaty and in pain, her hands smeared with blood. Write about so-called toxic masculinity, but try to find stories that triangulate with your sister's story somehow which shouldn't be too hard because that was the way it worked. No matter what was going on, 
you saw boys in relation to your sister. Write about how, years later, walking in the East Village with a male friend, someone you were just getting to know, you were horrified when he stopped walking and stood there, ogling a woman on the other side of the street, shaking his head. Write about the destabilized sense you had as you continued walking with him. And in the same story, jump back to the past and to the experience of being a small boy watching a young man coming to take your sister out, observing him as he pulls up in his car, an old El Dorado, not leaving his place behind the wheel, his hair long, his eyes glassy, giving you a curt little nod and blowing smoke from his cigarette into the air, motioning for your sister to come around to the passenger door. Write about the way she skipped lightly in her halter top, how you looked away and then back feeling shame and anger. Write about a mother, your mother, who is so grief-stricken, so in denial, that she sneaks off to the state mental hospital at night to pay your sister a visit. Make it a warm summer night with insects singing in the bushes and describe how she goes to the loading dock in the starlight. Describe the thick, black rubber bumpers where the trucks pull up behind the ward. As she stands, as she looks beyond the hospital and down the hill, a train horn will enter this scene, and she'll think of trips to Chicago she took with her family as a girl in the 1940s, and how everything back then was related to the war, and how the trains burning soft coal blew huge plumes of horrific smoke from their stacks. And then the security guard will appear, catching hold of her shoulder. Describe her confusion and terror as the guard makes the assumption, naturally, considering her state, the way she's shaking, that she's a patient escaped from lockdown for a cigarette. And how before she knows it, she's inside the ward in a Velcro restraining jacket. Describe her revolt. The madness of a mother, your mother, losing her shit and acting insane and then becoming insane. The needle plunging into the thick flesh of her arm. Draw from Chekhov's story, ward number six, so that the mother ends up as a patient in the same ward as the daughter. Write two versions. Happy ending, sad ending. In the happy version, she talks away out of the restraints and explains to a staff person, a younger woman who nods eagerly as she listens, that she is Meg's mother, that she simply wants to see her daughter. There are metal bars on the windows and moonlight segments the bars into shadow, and she thinks of old noir movies. In the happy version, the guard takes her to see her daughter, leaving the lights out, and she goes to the cot where her daughter sleeps and gently wakes her, and they embrace and hold each other. Out near the loading dock, the father pulls up in his car and honks the horn to reclaim his wife. They drive home and sit in the breakfast nook, drinking coffee and smoking and talking deep into the night. Near dawn, the phone rings, and it's the young female guard giving an update, saying, Meg is going to get better. She was helped by your appearance last night, she'll say. She'll use that word, appearance. And it'll sound off-key somehow, 
but you'll leave it in the story anyway. Write the sad version in which the mother is restrained and evaluated by the staff. A doctor arrives mild-mannered with a crew cut and writes on a clipboard. At first, it's believed that the mother is a delusional patient with a schizoid personality disorder who has given herself a false identity. So a bed check is conducted to see who might be missing. Someone is missing because a patient slipped away earlier in the night, sneaking out into the warm darkness, stark naked, working her way through the gap in the fence behind the main ward, down through the weeds and the grass to the creek bed at the bottom of the hill. She sits in the water and lets it wash over her as she smokes. Eventually, things are sorted out, but it's dawn, and the mother, still restrained, is evaluated by the morning staff and the morning doctor, who finally believes that she is indeed the mother of Meg Allen, and yet concludes that she, too, is in need of care. When the husband, your father, arrives, there is a conversation with the doctors. String this out for several pages and carefully build the narrative so that we're moving into the father's mind. Watching out the window as patients walk the grounds, the green light filtering through the trees outside and falling across the doctor's face, which when the father turns to look is kind and thoughtful. Let the father suddenly come to the realization that his wife is ill too and also show the reader that this is a dubious claim and that the story is locked into a time when men conspire against women in this way. Attempt to maintain a subtle balance so that the reader has to work to tweeze this out. End the scene with the father back in his car, casually lighting a cigar, cracking the windows, listening to the radio as he drives, and enter his future, which will be reflected, in his own eyes at least, in the beauty of the day deep blue cast of the summer sky and the silence of the neighborhood in the heat. Write at least six versions of the story using different points of view until you realize that the one with the sad ending is impossible to finish. Write another version in which the wife is taken home by the husband, curled weeping against the car door. Right into the steel of your rage, a rage that seems lost to you now as you sit alone in a house during a pandemic, confined to the space not only by your desire to create, but also by a desire to stay safe. Write about the city, 20 miles down the river, locked down, the streets silent, the streets of the East Village ghostly quiet until you feel the rage recenter you and then move from that to find images of your hometown again, of the Michigan winters, snow piling thick on cars, the streets quiet, and then shift the story back to the summer, back to the family with the daughter in the hospital. Keep reclaiming the rage you felt. Remember the time you visited your sister in the public housing complex on the edge of town? Just look at the building, driftwood gray, the stairs to her apartment rickety, the handrail splintery, and recall the extremely hot day you drove there under the railroad tracks and through the dirty viaduct into the weedy backside of town, sensing that the people there were hidden from view, part of the great national project of denial. You thought that 
and you'll use that phrase so that when you got to her apartment building, you sat and considered it knowingly, removing yourself from the scene to capture it in your imagination, to store it away for just this kind of moment. Right into that rage as you try again to capture the mother, short and overweight, her despair, speaking to the hospital attendant in a voice that is tight and childish. Write a story about a bunch of kids on the train tracks down the hill from your house in Michigan, fucking around in the rail yard, throwing rocks at the sides of boxcars, fiddling with the switch locks. Three young boys, all angry, and one has a sister like your own. And somehow, no matter what kind of trouble he gets into, he triangulates that trouble with her, sees his own actions and the actions of his friends in relation to her. Walking the little trestle bridge over the sludge river, the goopy paper pulp thick with a crust, thinking of his sister somehow in relation to the boy named Jerry, who is bigger, a bully at heart, ahead of him, and the other kid turning around quickly and threatening to push someone in if they dare approach, leaving them stranded on the trestle, which isn't that long, really, not daring to move forward or to retreat. His eyes are gray, which seems too fantastic considering his last name, Gray, but you leave it in. And his mouth is set firm the way it gets just before he becomes violent. And right then on the trestle, the boy's aware, or you have a vision in the story of the future, of a boy like Jerry and his own sister. So instead of backing off, he plunges ahead, making a loud hooting sound and rushes Jerry with all his might until the bully tumbles to the side and falls, his feet touching the toxic paper pulp waist, looking up with rage-filled eyes, eyes that could tear you apart. Right into this moment and find the ending, which will include the long trudge back up the hill and entering into a kitchen, warm with the window steamed, the smell of tuna casserole, as if entering another world. Write by drawing from an obscure story by Nelson Algren, one of his Texas stories about poor folks dealing coal to survive, waiting by the tracks for a train to roll past, scampering up onto the cars and tossing pieces of coal down. Or maybe they collect pieces that have been dislodged and fallen off the train, and as they scurry around in their madness for warmth, a little girl is hit by the train. And in the end, all that is left in the dirty ballast along the tracks is her cupid doll, which becomes the title of the story. Somehow transform this into a story about a sister who isn't the little girl, but a young woman who's down in the rail yard, high, with her other fuck-up friends, maybe even Jerry, somewhat older, messing around, but also trying to save themselves from another kind of coldness. And above them is the Michigan twilight you've used before. Go ahead and use the word eggplant again. And then it happens and she slips and it is over and she looks like a rag doll. Transfer all your fears as a teenager into that moment in the story. The lost, forlorn eyes, empty of life, staring up into that sky and into your own mind as you write. The fuck up kids fearfully running away, lifting their legs high as they sprint running up the hill, the road is still a brick road for some reason, and stopping at the top to huddle 
to conspire a story to tell their folks, to cover up what really happened. Write a story in a strictly confessional tone, allowing the narrator to come out and say, once upon a time there was a young man who had a mentally ill sister, and then spell it out in clinical terms and without the fear that writing the story will somehow burn out your other creative inspirations. Use that as part of the story, writing about creativity and inspiration and how you fear a depletion of energies. If it helps, call the story The Depletion. The confessional tone will, if it works, shroud the fundamental truth of the story itself. That inside any confession, there is always a tonal quivering of distaste and distrust. Perhaps inside the reader's mind, too. Lean into that and go ahead and describe what it was like. The confusion and loneliness of watching your sister as she howled at night, the windows dark. Write a rant inside the story against the concept of prompts as tools, as a way to write. And in doing so, explain that the prompt itself is always a form of limitation, a matter of forcing the writer into a prefabricated box, into an imitation of some other voice, and express your sense over the years of reading stories that were obviously created, sparked, urged on via a prompt. Use as an example the idea of instructions as a prompt. Explain that someone, a writer you admire, originally wrote a story, several stories actually, that took the form of instructions or how-to. Avoid naming her name for the sake of propriety. And then lament the fact that when you were reading stories by other writers, you couldn't help but feel her prompt lurking off stage, a shadow, maybe even a presence brushing the curtain fabric, revealing a shoulder or an arm, and breaking the dream apart. Although you'll admit in this story that you're too sensitive and prone to grandiosity when it comes to these things, detailing an aesthetic belief system before you let the narrative peter out into a formality that is horrifically stiff, letting go of any intention at all that you might have to tell a story, and leave it at that. Let it go. Admit that you feel out of fuel, that the spark is gone, and that you're sitting alone in a room trying to come up with a way to regain the dream, to find a story. Because there is a young woman, your sister, maybe, maybe not, sitting alone on a curb during a pandemic, her face wrapped in a blue bandana or a scarf. The streets are empty. Nothing is moving. The stores are closed. Write a diatribe inside the story about how a prompt is a useful tool as long as it is self-created out of your own imagination and explain how Eudora Wealthy, maybe it was her, maybe not, said that she could get an idea for a story from seeing a wisteria bush or an old rocking chair or the look on a child's face outside some gas station and then go full tilt into the crazy wildness of your desire to nail down what it seemed like that day a few years ago, going under the railroad tracks and then along the road to the old housing complex, weathered and beaten down, hidden off on the edge of town to visit your sister, mounting the old splintery stairway to her apartment while down below the drug dealers lurked and leaned on the cars, 
And you said to yourself, going up the stairs, before she opened the door, I have to use this as a prompt. This moment here, before she opens the door, to write a story about someone like this, placed in public housing, alone, struggling with her illness, and use that thought to end the story, leaving behind a frank admission somehow that everything you create is fueled by such moments and is also useless because reality has a blunt force that is too brutal to put into words, because words are too formal too structured. Then, in an unleashing of spirit, admit that by giving up, only by giving up, can you find the stories that might convey that moment, the one you're in, and then approach the door and begin to knock, waiting for her to open up, to present her beautiful face to you. That was David Means reading his story, The Depletion Prompts. He's been publishing fiction in the magazine since 2004. You can hear more New Yorker fiction read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker apps, available from the App Store or from Google Play. On the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, we invite writers to choose stories from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, Donald Antrim reads The Balloon by Donald Barthelme. You can subscribe to that and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this podcast by rating and reviewing The Writer's Voice in Apple Podcasts. Our theme music is by Jordan Batiste and Ross Michaels of North American Plastics. The Writer's Voice is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.